as Nate said, this morning we're looking at what a lot of us know as a rather familiar story. It comes in sort of in the early third of the book of Acts, and then being so important, gets repeated in the 22nd chapter and in the 26th chapter. So the way I want to delve into this <clears throat> is threefold. First, we'll do a recap of what we've heard read, just to make sure that we all know the story. But in so doing, I want to take a step back and give the background that leads up to this particular story. And in, in, in that context, I will look at biblical and sort of extra-biblical information to actually arrive at where we are. Then to pan out a little bit and look at this as a literary instrument. So do some textual analysis of why it is that the gospel writer Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, has written it in the way it is. Why is it that he's put this story where he's put, he's put it and then repeated it again? And then, for the bulk of this, morning, this morning's talk, to actually look in great detail, almost line by line at the key lines, to see what we can draw out of it, using it as a springboard into Paul's letters on a couple of occasions and into the Old Testament. So that's broadly the threefold framework <clears throat> that I want to adopt in looking into this. So, recapping and going into background, we are dealing here with an individual we'll, we're all very familiar with. He has written 13 of the letters in the New Testament. It's the Apostle Paul, who at this stage is still known by his birth name, Saul. It's at Acts chapter 13 that we see the fact that from then on he is referred to as Paul. So who is Saul? Where is he from? What is his background? Saul was born into a very Jewish family in the city of Tarsus. Now Tarsus was a very educated city. In, in that period, there were three, or want to a better way of putting it, university cities in the ancient world, namely Athens, Alexandria, and here, Tarsus. So Paul, in his upbringing and education, would have been steeped in Greek thinking. So all the Greek philosophical thinking of the age is something that he would have been steeped in, the methodology of argument, and we kind of see this later on in his letters, the diatribe approach that he takes on certain occasions, the philosophical method that he uses, would have been in his education in Greek philosophy. At the same time, he was born a Roman citizen. Now that is a spectacular privilege in the first century, because you were either born a Roman citizen, you served as a legionnaire for years and years and years, and you might be given Roman citizenship at the end of it. A governor or the emperor might bequeath it on you because of some amazing service. Or if you're incredibly wealthy and a non-citizen, you might purchase it. But to be born a Roman citizen is a spectacular privilege which we see as Acts unfolds that Paul, in key moments, when he comes a little bit unstuck, utilizes to great advantage. Now that's his Roman and Greek and philosophical and educated background. Now, equally, and if not more importantly, 
he is steeped in Jewish learning. We find later on, when he speaks about himself, that he says, of the Hebrews, I am the greatest Hebrew. And he's not just boasting, he's, he's factually accurate. He comes from a Pharisaic family, which is, which is why he's a Pharisee. And when he comes of a certain age, his father packs him off to Jerusalem to learn Judaism of the day. In other words, Second Temple Judaism. What we've had in the Old Testament is First Temple, i.e. the Temple Solomon built, got destroyed, Second Temple built, and then the most amazing Second Temple in the time of Herod the Great, and this is that Second Temple period that we're dealing with, so the Judaism of the time. And one of the key teachers of the Judaism of the time was a person called Gamaliel. Now, if anyone had studied under Gamaliel, he would be preeminent in Jewish educational learning anywhere in the Jewish diaspora. So he learned under Gamaliel, who was nicknamed the beauty of the law because of the way he used to explain the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And at the same time, Paul would have been steeped in the entirety of the Old Testament. So he knew, was very familiar with the law, the writings, the prophets. And I'll come back to why I'm stressing the prophets later on. So he is steeped in Greek learning and he is steeped in Jewish learning. And having been steeped in both, he then rises up the Jewish ranks to become quite close to the Sanhedrin, i.e. The, the collective body that ruled Judaism, headed up by the high priest. And it is there that we'll pick up the story when we come to look at it in greater detail. Now, panning back, let's look at the text. Let's look at the literary structure of what Luke is trying to achieve. And in that context, let's briefly glance back at his gospel and then look at Acts in the same vein. So we have essentially a highly educated, non-Jewish, Greek-speaking author who was a doctor. So he is, in his day, a professional, highly educated, and that comes through in the Greek style of writing that he does. So if you were to span through the New Testament, you will find that Luke's writings are the most polished Greek. In, in contrast, for example, to the Apostle John, who's like very pithy, short sentences, theologically amazing, but short. In the beginning was the word, full stop. The word was God, full stop. He was with God, full stop. You don't get that with Luke. With Luke, you get very polished writing. At the same time, though, he is very familiar with the pre-Christ translation of the Jewish scriptures into Greek, which are called the Septuagint. And so when he wants to make an allusion to the Old Testament, or when he wants to quote from the Old Testament, he uses the Septuagint. But even when he's not quoting, <clears throat> when he wants the reader to think that there's something going on here that's by reference to the Old Testament, he changes his Greek style from the polished Greek to the Septuagint, Hebraic style Greek. <clears throat> And what we find in his structure is that he almost always puts a preamble and then builds up a, a story. So if we look at the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, we'll see that he sets out how Jesus was to be born, and then he sets out the ministry and ends it on an Old Testament high. Because we see the road to Emmaus interaction between two of the disciples of Jesus, of the wider 70, and Jesus where Jesus sets out to them 
the whole of the Old Testament. And that becomes very, very interesting, because bear in mind that Paul is equally steeped in the Old Testament. So we see the two individuals at the end of Luke understanding a messianic version of the Old Testament. And up until this point, we see Paul not quite getting the messianic version, but very well steeped in Old Testament. So then we move into the, um, the book of Acts, and we see Luke again setting the scene. Before his ascension, Jesus says that the gospel will spread from Judea into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we've got the Judea bit covered when Peter stood up at Pentecost and spoke to the whole Jewish diaspora that had gathered in Jerusalem. We've got Samaria covered. The apostle Philip went up, brought the gospel to Samaria. John did a, a couple of fleeting visits. So that's done. And now, for the rest of the book of Acts, Luke is going to go big picture, the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth begin in Damascus. And that is where this story kicks in. And Damascus is an ancient city. It predates Abraham and is still around today. So it's an ancient city. At the time, it was a beautiful marble city. So it was a preeminent city of the ancient world that essentially, if you left Jewish and Samaritan lands, it was the first place you'd get to when you begin going into Gentile territory, so to speak. So that is where he picks up. And he uses two stories, this story of the transformation of Saul and the story of the interaction of Peter with Cornelius to, to essentially inaugurate the move from a Jewish faith to a global faith. Because you have two pillars. One pillar is about to become a pillar, Saul, and the other one, Peter, is already essentially one of the leaders of the apostolic group, the one who set out the message at Pentecost. So with Peter, we see the move of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit essentially instructs him through visions and through his interaction with Cornelius, who was a sort of Roman centurion, that if the Holy Spirit can descend on a Roman, it can descend globally. So Peter, from his Jewish thinking, suddenly broadens it out. At the same time, we pick up the story here, where, as Nate read, we see that Jesus says he's going to use this individual to spread his message. So this particular story that we see is probably the pivotal moment of the shift in gear of Christianity. Peter gives his blessing in the move to the Gentiles, but it is Paul who ultimately takes it there. And so here we are introduced to an individual called Saul, who is later to be named Paul, and how this interaction with Jesus moves the whole story of Christianity forward. So let's, if you have a Bible or your favorite app, do look at it. If you don't, don't worry. I will sort of read out the key points. So we meet Paul, or Saul at this stage, still breathing out threats against the Lord's disciples. And every time you see Lord, think Jesus, because that's how Luke utilizes the word Lord. He takes on the name of the, of the God of the Old Testament and always applies it to Jesus. So here we see that Saul is setting off with, with credentials, with letters of reference to the synagogues in Damascus in order to pick up anyone who is a follower of the gospel 
and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. There's one key thing to note here. The credentials are coming from the Jewish high priestly collective, the Sanhedrin. So it only applies to those within Judaism who have now come to accept Jesus as their Messiah. It does not apply to Gentile Christians. In a sense, that wouldn't have mattered at all to Saul, because all he cared about was the purity of his Jewish faith. So he goes with credentials to Damascus to visit the multiple synagogues, because Damascus had a massive Jewish diaspora, to pick out those people who were followers of what is known as the way. And the way is taken up from, and from what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 14, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Or put a different way, I am the way, dash, I am the truth and life. So it's, it picks that up, but it also picks up the then Judaic worldview of there being a right way and a wrong way. And that and this way was a lifelong interaction with the deity and a lifelong interaction with your fellow human beings. And there was a right way of doing it the, under the law, and there was an erroneous way of doing it. So in a sense, those who are followers of Jesus, and I'm intentionally framing it that way because the word Christian doesn't exist yet, those who are followers of Jesus have appropriated the name of the way for themselves. So in a sense, to, to someone like Saul, this is anathema. That he thinks he knows the law and the prophets. He is the ultimate Pharisee. He is the ultimate righteous person under the law. And there has come a band of others who have taken on that title for themselves. So he's off to find them, get them, bring them to justice within Jerusalem. So that is where we meet him off on his five-day journey, round about 34 AD, on the way to Damascus. Now, the rest of it is probably through church art quite familiar. There are so many pictures of Saul on the floor seeing a flashing light. So we find that he gets a bright light, and if we look at chapters 22 and 26, where it's Saul's testimony of what's happened, he, it, it's sort of verified that it's a, he, he sets out the scene that it's at noon. So the Middle Eastern sun at noon is bright. And he sets it out as being a brighter light than, this, uh, than the, that midday sun flashed at him and he fell over. Now, Saul is very conversant with the Old Testament. What would instantly have gone through his mind at that particular point is the initial interaction by the prophet Ezekiel with God, whom he saw, whom Ezekiel saw in human form. So a theophany in the Old Testament. And in case you're not familiar, I'll read it and then we'll, we'll look at it more closely together. So there it says that above the vault, over their heads, over angelic heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, that's gemstones. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. 
I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So that's Ezekiel having a theophany, seeing God manifesting himself in human form in the Old Testament, around about 500 and something BC, and um, falling face down to the ground, acknowledging what he sees as Lord, falling face down. Someone who is steeped in Jewish learning has that happen to him. The reaction he takes is exactly the reaction Ezekiel's takes. He falls face down. In other words, a Jewish, well-trained person only knows that you're meant to worship one God. So he falls face down in worship, addresses him as Lord, and says, who are you? And there is a surprise of surprises to him. Instead of hearing, like Moses might have done, I am, he hears, I am Jesus. And suddenly, in that key moment, Paul's entire worldview would have changed. So, and he expands on this when he gives his own testimony of what happened when we look at chapter 26 of Acts. And he says, I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, who are made holy by faith in me. So we get a little bit more of a glimpse of the response of Jesus when then Paul is giving his testimony that rather than a seeing here. What we do see here is that he's blinded, he's on the ground, his companions heard this but not quite understood what they've heard they've seen the light and what's happened to him he's been blinded and for three days he remained blind and he fasted didn't eat for three days couldn't see for three days but when we move further down as Nate read and we see Jesus talking to Ananias Jesus points out to Ananias that Paul is praying so what we have in this situation is that he has come face to face with the Lord. The pennies dropped that the Lord is Jesus. He's lost his sight, but the blind will see and those who see can't see, as Jesus has previously said. Allusions to the blind Bartimaeus in, in uh, the Gospel of Mark, where um, he could not see yet understood who Jesus was and the people around him could not. And suddenly, just when Paul can't see, he can see. And he is praying to Jesus. And the period of time which he is praying for is equivalent to the period of time that Jesus was in darkness, in the grave, three days. So 
We then pick up the story with further instructions from Jesus saying, go into Damascus to a particular house, wait, someone called Ananias will come and get you, essentially. And then it shifts the story to the interactions of Jesus with Ananias. Now, who is Ananias? He is a Jewish follower of the way and a leader amongst the synagogues of Damascus. What are the credentials that Saul is bringing with him to go around, collecting everyone like him, and he's the pinnacle of that. So, not surprisingly, when we meet Ananias, he gets his message to go around and find Saul. His initial reaction is not actually that positive. He's like, do you know who this guy is? He's actually off coming to get me and take me to Jerusalem, and you want me to go him to him and essentially put my arms around the guy and invite him in. And, um, and that is where Jesus says, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much must suffer for my name. So that kind of relaxes Ananias. And then when Paul picks up this story about the sufferings, and we, we can see sort of a glimpse of it in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I might have my mind to talk about this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in open sea. I've been constantly on the move. Bandits, etc., etc., etc. The list goes on. And that's written at 55 AD. Halfway through this guy's mission. He goes on till 65 AD. So Christ, when he says, I've selected this person as my instrument to go everywhere, and I will show him how much he must suffer for me, it's borne out. Both if we look at Acts and if we look at what, um, what Saul is saying. So then we have Ananias come into where Saul is, and we have the most amazing confluence of almost Holy Spirit and what we'd now call sacraments coming together. Because we see the infilling of the Holy Spirit, scales fall from Saul's eyes, and he receives his baptismal regeneration, and he is a new creation from there on. So if we were to look at, for example, Johannine theology, he is born from above, instantly goes into baptism. John 3. And then Paul picks up on this in his letters. And we see this transformation of an individual who relied on Old Testament law. Now, when he sets out the basis of his faith, we find him in, in Romans saying, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, and there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. It's one. So, 
What is, what is happening to Paul here, or Saul? He's essentially on a trajectory quite narrowly in his faith. And then he realizes that the continuation of that trajectory is what has been called the way. So if you were, for example, to compare Second Temple Judaism, which is where we are, with Judaism today, the Judaism of today has taken some fascinating intellectual roots over the 2,000 years and is different to the Second Temple Judaism of then. And you also have Christianity that has developed in parallel at the same time. So that is why, even though the headings say conversion, I have hesitated calling what's happened to Saul a conversion because there was no Christianity into which you would convert. If there is Christianity, it's as a result of the codification of Christianity that an understanding of the collective of his 13 letters bring about. He wasn't going from an ism to an itty. He was essentially saying, here I am, and he spends years before he starts his ministry. And actually, there's a gap, if you actually look at the dating of Acts, well, from this incident to when he actually goes around uh, into the wider Mediterranean. So he rethinks everything he has known up until that point and takes it as the logical continuation of the religion to which he adheres at the time. So that's what we have. It's the utter transformation of an individual steeped in Old Testament law and prophet, thinking it through from this point on and saying, where does this logically lead? And essentially, that is what we find. We find his Greek thinking, his Judaic framework coming together and building out what we now broadly see as Christianity alongside the thinking of amazing thinkers like the Apostle John. It's the same thing from different angles. But the codification, the Christianity in the global world owes a lot to Saul here. And that is why I would say it's a transformation when he comes face to face with Jesus. So if not that, and that's not enough, face to face with the third person, the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, then gets baptized. And then what do we find? We find in verse 1 that he was going to the synagogues in Damascus, breathing out threats to arrest them. He goes to the very same synagogues in verse 20, and at once he began to preach in those synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So that brackets this passage. Going to persecute goes out proclaiming. And now, when we look at ourselves, how do we apply a passage like this? At some level, it doesn't demand application. It is a historical statement of fact that this apostle had this background and this is what happened. We then find the greatest of the apostles being, in his words, the last of the apostles. He rebrands himself in chapter 13 as Paul. Paul in Greek is bavlos, which comes from the word bavla, which means dash. He's essentially saying, at the end of all these great apostles, I am the dash. But that dash, that humble man, brings about the spread of Christianity. 
But however we slice this, we have also had a similar, if we call ourselves Christians, which we can do now, we have all, all had a similar interaction. One cannot be a Christian unless the Holy Spirit is indwelling them. One cannot be a Christian unless they have seen the real Jesus. You might think you know Jesus if you're not a Christian. You might reject that which you don't quite fully get. So there can be an understanding of Jesus that one might draw or pull back from. But if the true Jesus is revealed, because let's look at Saul. He knew Jesus, he knew about Jesus, and he was persecuting the followers of Jesus. Then he sees Jesus, who are you, Lord? So the transformation when one sees the real Jesus cannot be resisted. And whether it's as dramatic as here, or whether it's in the words of uh, the Apostle John in Revelation, when he sees Jesus standing at the door and knocking, whoever opens, I will come in. So whether dramatic or whether Jesus is taking a more measured approach, shall we say. It is equally dramatic when you come face to face with a second person of the Godhead. In reality, whether one is aware of it or whether it happens more gradually. And then events surrounding that transformation of soul. Events surround the transformation of all individuals who ultimately come to faith in Jesus. A friend invited you to church. Everywhere you went, you couldn't just avoid seeing references to Jesus. So things can happen. And that if God is sovereign, which is something we see throughout Scripture, the sovereignty of God ultimately cannot be overridden. So if he's knocking, eventually you will open He'll come in. But when, you, when he comes in, what do you find? You find this Jesus who had previously died on a cross, wiped away all sin, and presents himself, the holy God, as our individual savior. And the entry point into this collective, which we call the church, whether here or more widely, is individual. But the going out is as a body, which is why we can look back and see when Paul says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the next line was, whom you are persecuting. So the persecution of any individual within the church is a persecution of the head of the church, Christ, and us, the body. If any one of you is hurting, the rest of us are hurting. Jesus is hurting. Jesus is hurting. The Trinity is aware of it. God knows. God is hurting. So we, when we see God, he's not some ethereal thing up there. He is the person who is knocking. He is the Holy Spirit who is calling. And he is the Holy Spirit who comes in to dwell. And Christianity is not a zero-sum game. If I'm doing well, I don't get happy about it because someone else is doing not well. It's the religion of human flourishing. Everyone does well. Everyone to attain the image of the living God, which essentially is Christ Jesus. And that is why Paul's entire ministry from here on in dwells on.
to essentially bring people to an understanding of the love of God, understanding how, how the judgment of God is removed and how we can be image bearers of God collectively. You succeed, I succeed. I succeed, you succeed. This church succeeds, every church succeeds. And collectively, we reflect God to those who do not know God. And that is our calling. So we see the rest of Acts, up until Acts 28, being the outworking, the zeroing in of what Saul then Paul does, and we see developing. But the church didn't end when Acts 28 came along. There's an entire Acts 29 that we are currently in that spans from then all the way until the consummation of history. And that's where we are. So identify your calling. Verse yourselves very strongly in Scripture, just as Saul had done. So when the reality dawned, he understood. So when we see promptings of the Holy Spirit, we understand. And in so doing, rejoice that together we are the body of Christ. Work individually, collectively. Let us all draw in together in this mission that ultimately brings about Christ into the world. And if you bring Christ into the world, the love of God, the kingdom of God, which the church had looked at a few months ago, is brought in individually and collectively through us. Amen. Amen.